0: Acts chapter 22, this is Paul's testimony of his conversion. Uh, we are in the middle of studying his conversion. Last week we left him off blind, not eating, not drinking. And so we're going to see the completion of his uh, conversion in Acts 9. But we want to read his testimony of it here before the uh, men of Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 22, it says, and fathers... Hear my defense before you now. When they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women as also the high priest bears witness and all the counsel of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And Those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony, and with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will, and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprison and beat those who believe on you. and When the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death. And guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Well, we, uh, as I said earlier, we left Saul of Tarsus in the dark last week. We looked carefully at that process of God coming up against one who was his enemy, one who was kicking against the goads, one who was resisting the, the, pokes of God to get him to go in the right direction. That God had brought into his life some powerful and effectual servants, but he was resisting them. That tells me that there was a struggle, there was something going on in Saul's heart and life, and God knew it. God knew that he heard the testimony of Stephen. And while his trained reaction was to identify this one as an enemy of of uh, the people of Israel and of his faith, uh, he knew that there was truth in what he heard, but he resisted it. And we would tend to write off such a one and say, well, they've resisted it, and we pull out verses, and I've used this to myself on occasions, we pull out verses, um, you know, not to cast pearls before swine. As an excuse now that we can avoid or no longer confront them any further with the gospel as they have so vehemently re- reacted against it. But I will contend with you that uh, those who vehemently, who are, who are incensed at the gospel message, are more likely to be receptive than those who are unfazed by it. The really dangerous ones, and the ones that are, that are perhaps almost unreachable, and I hate to use that term about anyone as long as we're on this side of Christ's second coming, um, are those that just don't care. That just kind of shrug their shoulders, oh, that's nice for you. And that, unfortunately, is the prevailing attitude in our society uh, in those that we encounter and share the gospel with, is, oh, that's nice for you. Our family members who don't know the Lord, that's nice for you, just don't push it on me. And uh, that's as far as it gets. It's when... We encounter those who are reactive to it. And, of course, the reaction we want is the response we're looking for is repentance and and a, a, a knowledge of their sin and, and a willingness to accept that and, and allow it to penetrate our hearts and bring us to our knees before the throne of God. That's the reaction we want. But the reaction of a man like Saul does not make him unreachable. For that is still a reaction. He is still considering it. He has understood it. He has engaged in the, in the message. He has started to relate and understand what it means, what it entails. And for Saul, this he understood was really attack on all that he had given his life for. He had given his life for the law. And he understood the message of Stephen, that this meant that all that stuff that he had built his life around would have to be surrendered. He knew that that was what it would require. He engaged the message of Stephen. He was not lax and uninterested in it, but rather he understood it. He understood the power of this message and what it would require of him. And he wasn't ready to... Make that change. He just wasn't ready for it. And yet, he heard that testimony and we uh, are fully convinced that he heard uh, Christ's teaching as well and and he, he, he had to be in Jerusalem and the events around the crucifixion and the resurrection. He had all of these goads in his life poking at him Reminding him, nudging him, sometimes very vehemently. And not only did you have God poking him, but you had him kicking against that. and We talked about that last week. And so we find Saul now confronted with Christ and in darkness. That God put upon him physical darkness so that he would grasp the spiritual darkness that he was really in without Christ in his life. He's led to Damascus and we found him there three days. and again, we talked last week that we would have very quickly moved forward and said, "Oh now you now that you sense and know who Jesus is, that he is God and you heard a voice from heaven, the, the shocking voice that wasn't shocking because it was from heaven, it was shocking because it said, "I am Jesus." Not a name Paul expect, or Saul expected to hear that day. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. He was amazed. So were all those around him. But rather than bringing him to a conversion event right there on the spot, Jesus says, just move along. Get to Damascus. Three days, Saul is going to be in the dark. He's going to spend that time in fruitful work. He's going to spend that time in prayer and fasting. He's been confronted by God and it is now time for him to make a choice. And we come now to the second half of Saul's conversion. I don't believe Saul is converted on the road to Damascus. I believe he's converted in Damascus. The evidence of conversion is not found here. Christ doesn't say you need to accept me as Savior and Lord. He doesn't say repent of your sins. He doesn't instruct him about baptism. He doesn't do any of the things that he commanded the church in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 to go out and make disciples and baptize them and teach them. Christ doesn't do any of that. It's not his job. He gave it to you. He gave it to me. It's our job. But he directs Saul to a place and says, I'll send you the right people and they'll come and uh, you just wait there and someone will tell you what to do. I want to share with you that that today uh, for us here in a building that's largely if not completely filled believers in Christ Jesus who have made that confession of faith, that Ananias is who we are. We carry the expectations of God just like Ananias, and he becomes this unlikely person used by God in Saul's life, and he was, frankly, kind of an unwilling participant, wasn't he? As we are many times in the work of God to our community. We want to study his role this morning. Before we do so, let's go to Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us, for the opportunity to look in your word and we rejoice in it, in its truth, its power. Um, we pray for direction by your Spirit that we might be illuminated to it. Uh, you might guard this time from error, from the opinion of men or this man, from the philosophies of this world, that your word might go forth with clarity of power, and that we might have hearts ready to submit to accept its authority, to respond as you desire us to with obedience. Lord, it is certainly well beyond my powers to accomplish any of this in anyone's life, and so our complete dependence is upon you this hour. We thank you that you have promised that if we ask of you, you will freely give it. And we ask now. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Saul's in the dark, he's sitting in Damascus, was led there by his entourage, who also saw that, uh, heard the voice, but they didn't see who was speaking, they still have their vision, they were engulfed in the light like Saul was, Uh, nor, they are going to be reached likely by Saul's testimony more than by what was going on in the conversation. He's there in the dark, and God comes to a guiding man, Ananias. Uh, We are told he was a devout man. He had a good reputation among all the Jews in Damascus, which was a pretty significant population, as we shared that we have a a record that when the the destruction of Jerusalem was going on, that there was a general distrust of Jews and Christians really all through the Roman Empire, uh, but particularly in this region and in Damascus, over 10,000 were herded into uh, Colosseum and had their throats cut in one hour. That's a pretty significant population group. And so uh, Ananias had that testimony among the Jewish people there uh, that he was a man of righteousness, a man of truth. He was a man who sought after God, who walked uh, as God required of him, as that kind of a man, a follower of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 10 of chapter 9 of Acts, and uh, the Lord comes to him in a vision and says, Ananias, and Ananias has that response. And I love the first response, don't you? We talked about Saul's response, first response to Christ, who are you? Who are you, Lord? Ananias' first response is, here I am, Lord. And if you are on this side of salvation, if you are on the believing side of salvation and God comes through his word, through his people, uh, he comes and he says, this is what you ought to do. Your response is, here I am, Lord. We sang the songs this morning purposefully. I know some of them were a little bit of a struggle for you. We sang them on purpose. I picked songs not by whether I like them or not, but by whether they go with the message. Here I am, Lord. Do we have that in our vocabulary? Is that our natural response to coming to church? Here I am. What do you want? What do you require of me? What do you desire for my life? And this is the spirit of ones who want to follow after God, be true followers of Jesus Christ. And so we come to God, to His Word, uh, and we say, Here I am, Master. That we open the scriptures and while we pray for illumination, while we pray for understanding of them, um, fundamentally those aren't first. First we must come to God and say, here I am. Because there are plenty of people who know original languages, who understand what these words say and are not obedient to them. Because they haven't come to the Bible primarily with an understanding that here I am. I am at your disposal, Lord. I am here for your direction, for your command, and I am here to obey you. I am your servant. You are my Lord, my master. And this is where we begin in our service to God, is that statement that, of course, we are reminded of Samuel and His response, and he didn't, once he knew who was calling him, and hopefully by now you know who's calling you when you open your scriptures, when you hear the word of the Lord spoken forward, that you know who's talking. And we refer to the authors of these different books, but we really know who's talking, don't we? The Holy Spirit carried these men along, that while Luke wrote this book, God is the one talking to us. He's recorded these things for our benefit and we come to the pages of Scripture and if we do not have the Spirit, here I am, Lord, no illumination will benefit us. No understanding will be of value if we do not come with the Spirit of Ananias that says, here I am. I'm yours. You have the right to... Remove anything from my life. You have the right to bring anything into my life. You have the right to require anything of me, any sacrifice. Here I am. Of course, Ananias um, is going to be taken aback. (laughs) I think most of us, if we're really honest, and we come to the Scriptures and we read something and say, oh, does God really want me to do that? Doesn't it? There it is. And we read that. And we saw that. We saw especially in our study of Corinthians, right? We come into a passage that Does God really want us to do that? Really? Yes, He does. He really wants you to worship this way. He really wants you to, to live this way. He really wants you to have this kind of a testimony. He really wants these symbols of, of godliness uh, for men in this fashion, for women in that fashion. He really wants that stuff. He really wants it. And how frequently we miss those and we explain them away simply because we don't come to God's Word with the Spirit, here I am. Everything I am, everything I have is yours. To dispose of if you want it gone. To engage me if that's what you desire. I'm here to serve at your whim. Your every whim is my command the Lord responds get up get going I have the place I have the house and I have the man I'm going to give you directions right down to the very door you're going to knock on I'm going to tell you there's a man there his name is Saul he's from Tarsus but he's coming up from Jerusalem but he's he's of Tarsus Um, and I want you to know the condition of this man the condition of this man is he's praying. He's been confronted with Christ. He's been goaded by Christ uh, for weeks, is the evidence there. And he's been kicking against He's been resisting it. Um, but I slapped him upside the head on his way here. We're a little bit away from Damascus as they were almost there. And this wasn't early on the road. He was almost at the gates of Damascus. I've confronted him, and now he's praying. He is waiting for... A messenger. And Ananias is going to have a little bit of discussion with God about this. Um, He uh, says, uh, Lord, I want to make sure you know what you're doing. Essentially, that's what he does. (laughs) Lord, are you sure? Because he's taken aback by the assignment. Like most of us are taken aback by the assignments God gives us and we're unprepared a lot many times of just how powerfully and how radically God works. And it it shocks us a little bit. Let's be honest, that, that when God says He wants us to do this, we're like that doesn't seem reasonable. Because it's not rational to us on a human level. And I've talked about this. God is not irrational. He is super rational. His rationality is far above us. And we are taken aback by it. And we come to God and say, um, God, maybe you haven't heard. But, uh, you know, Wall Street gurus say, that's not the best plan for my finances. Lord, maybe you haven't heard. But that's not really how it's done in this culture. Lord, maybe you haven't heard. We've had a societal upheaval since then, and this stuff doesn't really apply anymore. It's not modern enough. Lord, maybe you haven't heard. And I essentially it comes to God and says, You have have you not heard? Don't you know who this guy is? Now remember, God has just told him where the guy is, who the guy is, where the guy came from, and what the guy is doing. That's a lot of information, don't you think? God has provided all this information about Saul, and Ananias basically comes to God and says, "Um, do you know who this guy is? Do you know what he's been doing? He was sent here to hunt us down, to kill us, to arrest us, to drag us to Jerusalem, do you know that this is who this is? Even after God gives all this information about Saul, I know what street he lives on. I know what house he's staying in. I know his, where he came from. I know his name. And I know what he's doing right now. And still, with all that information that God provided Ananias, Ananias still has to come to God and say, Are you sure about this? Do you really know, do you know who this guy is? And he has to explain to God. And do you ever catch yourself doing that? God, um, I don't know if you noticed, but uh, there's a drought going on here. That was last year. Didn't you notice, you know, we've been doing all this work and God doesn't need you to inform him. He needs you to obey him. But we're often convinced that we can come to God's Word, pick and choose what we obey, what we follow, how we serve God, and we are generally unwilling to take the risks that God really calls us to take to demonstrate that we really do believe Jesus is our Lord and God. Verse 15 says, the Lord said to him, just go. (laughs) It's the same thing he said earlier. He said, arise and go. Now he says, now that I've gotten you up out of your seat by the uh, force of the assignment being surprising to you, go. Go. I'm not going to discuss this, but I'm going to share with you a little more information. You know his past. <clears throat> Ananias wants God to make sure that he understands who Saul was. As if God didn't know. And many times we treat God like that, and I hear people in their prayers treating God like that, like he didn't know this was going on. Um, He simply says, cast your cares on him. Not that he needs to be informed of them. He knows they exist. You cast your cares on him because he cares for us, that we pray and we give him those things, that he has full knowledge of, fuller knowledge than we have, and and we invite his action with regards to those. Ananias here needs to inform God. Now God says, you've told me about his past. Um, I'm going to tell you about his future. I have a future for this man. We have a saying, don't we, that uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. If we look backwards, we can understand everything perfectly. Uh-huh. If that were true, the history books were written a lot differently. Fact is, we don't really hardly understand history. But we have the idea that since we know what has happened, that we can make decisions today based upon what has happened. But for the Christian, that is not. How we make our choices, that is a pessimistic view because everything that has happened is is uh, scrawny compared to what 's going to happen? Yes, do we not believe that Jesus is going to come and establish his kingdom? Do we not believe that we have eternity in his presence? and if we make our decisions based upon what has happened, in terms of our experience, well, you know, and I got to tell you I'm preaching to me this morning a lot um, you'll see it in a few minutes um, that we become very pessimistic in ministry because frankly experience wise, the church lets you down all the time. the pastor does, Christian friends do, doctrinal statements do. <laughs> And it's very easy to become pessimistic in ministry if we keep looking at what has happened in our life. Very easy. And God comes and says, no, you keep ministering because of what's going to happen. And we move from pessimism to optimism simply by being confronted with the fact that God holds a future. And He has a plan. He has a plan for this man's life. And he reveals it to Ananias to uh, impress upon Ananias that ministry is not based upon what you know about what people are like. Ministry is based upon what God knows what people can become. I know that certain people have certain character qualities or certain patterns of behavior and you see that and you try, and I tell people the ministry is all about breaking patterns of sin. That's what this is about. This is coming to church about breaking patterns in your life and conforming those patterns and make them new. That now, instead of walking in the flesh, I'm going to walk in the spirit. Instead of following this, my own interests, I'm going to follow uh, God's interests and I'm breaking these patterns and I'm, I'm refreshing them in the sight of God. And we do that. We can't accomplish that because God has a future. And he says, go. This guy, you know the past, but I know the future. He's a chosen vessel of mine. He's going to bear my name before the Gentiles. He's going to speak of me to kings. He's going to speak of me to the children of Israel, your own people. I'm going to show him and he's going to suffer for my name's sake. That last thing was perfect. That's all Ananias needed. Okay, as long as you're going to make him suffer, Lord. (laughs) God says, I have his future. This is a man who's going to serve me. You know his past. I know his future. And this is the premise of ministry. There are many times, my wife knows them better than most, that I'll get done with a week of ministry, and I'll go into my office, and I'll simply pound my head against the wall, basically, say, what a wasted week that was. I'm not sure anybody listens. And there's a level of frustration and a level of, of, you know, I thought we were done with that, and then we're right back into that with, with sin and with, with issues or with uh, relationships. And uh, why can't we get this right and keep it that way? And we, it's very easy to become so pessimistic and say, well, what's the use? It doesn't make a difference. People don't change. They're just going to go right back like dogs to their vomit, the Bible says. Like pigs to the mud. They're just going to go right back into it. You see, if we continually to focus on our experience of who people were, and even we can even say who they are, we will stop ministry. We might go through the motions and the actions of it, but true ministry will come to a halt if we build it upon that experience. Because the fact is, is that narrow is the road that leads to life, and few there be that find it. The fact is that many will come to Christ in that day and say, Lord, Lord, and he says, depart from me, I don't even know you. That, those are the words of the majority. And the fact is, is that ministry uh, is a high road. And, and few there be that are going to rise up to that level. But we call people to it continuously. Because there's a future in God's hand that he wants to work in our lives. Ananias could easily say, "Listen, we sent you sent him one of the best and brightest. You sent him Stephen, one of the seven. This man heard that guy's sermon and he didn't repent." He consented, and Saul, in his testimony, did you hear it there when we were reading that in chapter 22? Did you hear Saul share that? When And and Saul even knows it, says, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe in you, and the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed. I also was standing by consent to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Saul says, I know who I was. I thought I was completely disqualified. Even on this side of faith, I said, Lord, I don't think anyone wants to listen. I've been your enemy. I, I'm not qualified. And when Paul writes in, in passages like Philippians and Corinthians, and, and, and that's not false humility. Paul feels the weight of who he was as Saul. That he doesn't really have a right to be who he is, and yet God has called him to be that. Because God had a future when men could only look at Saul's past. And I want you to know this morning that God is at work in your life because he has a future for you. And it's easy for hindsighted men like me to break off ministry Because we forget that God is a future. And I don't know how many times you're going to have to be poked before you surrender. I don't know. Saul had Stephen. And that was a powerful sermon. Priests came to Christ. The guy didn't respond. I don't... We don't really know all the other goads that God used, but they were there. And Saul was kicking against them and kicking against them and kicking against them. Ananias had every reason as a hindsighted man to hesitate at God's command. And God says, no, you go, you minister, because I have a future for him. This is is what sustains us in ministry. This is why we keep serving those kids on Wednesday night. Oh, they've been coming for years, and they're just did I getting any of it. I share your frustration. A lot of times it feels that way. But we're going to keep ministering because we're not hindsighted people. We have our sights set on a kingdom not made of this hands. We have a God who is, who will work in men's lives and, and will continue to work. And we, when we pray for people's salvation, we're really praying God, keep confronting them, keep goading them, keep poking them, keep people ministering in their life that they might have every opportunity to turn. During this age of grace and mercy. We have some spectacular assignments that are frightening in their nature because of the risks they require of us. And too many times we have shrunk away from them because we're hindsighted. It won't make any difference because it didn't make a difference last time. That would have stopped Ananias in his tracks. And it was getting ready to. And God recognized it. All you can see about Saul is that he killed Stephen. That he's been arresting these others. He's been slaughtering them. And these are Christians who he's been confronted with their faces and their countenance filled with the peace of God that passes understanding that have expressed love to him. We don't know how many dozens of people he had encountered in that fashion. They had gone to their homes and ripped them out of them and taken them to the court and it was confronted with their testimony. We don't know how many times God had goaded him and Ananias could have easily have sat on his hands and says, he's had enough chances, Lord. I know a little bit of his history. It ain't going to happen. And ministry would have been over And what would have been missing out of your Bible? (laughs) See, God holds a future. And it might take dozens of messages and dozens of messengers before it finally gets into our thick skulls. That God has a future for me. Praise the Lord for those that get it young and figure it out and respond by faith. Um, they're precious to the church. They're precious in the sight of God. Um, but and, and the fact is, is that there are those who are today sworn enemies of the church and of God himself. God says, you go. Doesn't matter that past, you go. God knows their future. You and I don't. Because we believe in a God that works, in a God that has a future, we minister. We go. And we do so willingly. We do so expectantly. And Isaac says went his way, entered the house. Laid his hands on Saul and said, "Brother Saul, isn't that great Call him brother." <laughs> down the street, I don't know what if on the other end of Straight Street, wherever Ananias was, it was like this guy is a murderer. As he's walking down Straight Street and gets to Judas's house and goes in, now he has because he's been confronted with the fact that God has a future and is. Speech now is filled not with trepidation, not with anxiety, but his speech now is filled with hope. His speech now is filled with, with a confidence in the working of God. And he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has set me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Boom, there it happened. Saul was ready. He was waiting for a messenger. And you do not know how many people are out there. And you can judge them and, and, and evaluate them. And you can try to determine their past and, and say, well, they're just not going to receive it. But you don't know their future. But God does. Our instruction, our command, our engagement by God is to go and tell the nations the gospel. Irrelevant is their past. Christ died for that, to cover it. It is rather what drives ministry is the future that God has. And coming in upon Saul, whom God had prepared. You don't know what God has been doing in these lives that you're going to encounter this week. You may be the first goad that they're going to Spit at. Swear at. Resist with everything they can. Or you may be the last. You don't know. We trust the Lord for the future. And we minister on. He shows up. And Saul receives the Holy Spirit. Saul receives his sight. Spiritual sight with that physical sight. The Spirit of God is received. And now, interestingly enough, differently than we do today. Um, We do it reverse, but We want to quickly bring them to salvation and then take a little time before we baptize them. But Ananias had it reversed. God had it reversed. We're going to let Saul sit in his darkness for three days. Let him contemplate the fact that he has been opposing the one true and living God. and Let him sit in his sin for a little while, knowing that it's sin. And then having received the Spirit of God and by faith trusting in that. The statement is, what are you waiting for? Let's get you baptized. That's here in Saul's testimony in Acts 22. What are you waiting for? Let's just get baptized. Let's make this thing. Let's go public with this right now. What are you waiting for? Let's let everyone know that you are a new creature. That that old life is washed away. That that Saul of Tarsus who opposed and, and hunted down Christians is gone. He's washed. He's cleaned. And now he is a servant of the one that once he fought against. And that baptism happened. He spent some days with the disciples. And I love verse 20. Immediately start preaching. He went to the Jews, started preaching and showing how Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God and the Christ. And it amazed everybody. I just want to share with you that this plan of God, this mechanism by which God gets the gospel out has not changed. We have tried to relegate it to the media, Christian radio and TV stations. We've tried to relegate it to parachurch organizations, Um, God has one plan for the gospel, and that is for his people to confront people with the gospel. That's the command. Even Christ himself would not short-circuit that process. He got their attention, and he directed Saul, you go and wait right there, and uh, then he shows them, a guy named Ananias is going to be coming by, so he's the one with the truth, because you want to be able to distinguish the truth from those that are bringing error, and because um, other people were expecting Saul in Damascus, right? He was an expected emissary from Jerusalem. He had letters, had official documents. So there was people there expecting him, who might have come by to see how he was doing, to say, "Hey, I heard you got in town," but no, I'm going to send you a guy named Ananias. He shows them that he's prepared the soil. But he waits for a servant of his to bring the message. We've heard testimony of people, and we've shared this before in different communities of faith that wanted to know the truth, who prayed, God sent them servants. Or God gave them dreams that said, you need to go talk to so-and-so. You need to go speak to this man. He'll tell you the truth. This is the plan of God for the dissemination of the gospel is you. There is no plan B. That, that burden, that expectation, is there. And it is for us to respond to God and say, here I am. Here I am. This is how men will come to Christ. The Spirit will do His job, Always. To convict is promised to do that. To convict the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. It's not our job to convict anybody. But it is our job to confront them. Even when they curse us and hate us, despise us, kill us, we still keep confronting them because we have a God who holds their future. If we stop living, and min- we'll stop ministering if we stop living in light of a God who holds the future, if all we look at is the past, if I keep looking over my shoulder in ministry, I will get frustrated, I'll be disappointed, I'll be pessimistic. My statement to God and to sometimes others out loud will be, "They just don't change. They just won't change." And that's sin. because it's refusing to acknowledge that I have a God who is the agent of change and can transform sinners into saints. I have a God who's a future that things will not always be as things always were, that there will be an end of this age, that there will be a one to come where Christ will reign and rule. There will be justice and light and life and joy forevermore. God holds a future, and so we go and minister. Even to those that we have ministered time and time Again, to and seeing little or no fruit, or ne- maybe what we would consider negative fruit <laughs> the opposite of it, rottenness. But we go because God has a future, not only for you, God has a future for them, and He knows that. We do not. So whether it be that they will stand before God as judge and bend the knee then and God will say, No, I sent some of my messengers and you rejected them and I am just in sending you to eternal punishment. Or whether they respond someday, somewhere, to someone bringing them the gospel. Maybe you won't even find out about it till glory. Well, either response. Our mission is complete only if we go, having come to God saying, here I am. I'm yours. Use me. Let's pray.